Hey, everybody, and welcome to the State of the Art Podcast, where we're talking about art, technology, and most importantly, why you should give a shit. I'm your host, Andrew Herman, and I'm a startup founder, an engineer, and a creative. I am fascinated by the collision of art and technology. I'm excited to bring you along as I meet artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, and anybody else who lives on the border between art and technology. This is actually the second in a two-part series that we're doing to cover the Artobots Art and Technology Festival that Kodame has put on. So if you like this episode or if you didn't tune in last week, please go back and check out last week's episode as well. There's lots of great guests there too. Uh, if you're not aware or you didn't tune in last week, the Artobots Festival was an art and technology festival hosted by Kodame. And if you don't remember Kodame, then uh, go back and find our episode with Vanessa Chang, who was the curator over at Kodame. They're an awesome group located here in the Bay Area, advocating for art and technology and doing lots of cool stuff here. So thanks so much for Vanessa and the team at Kodame for allowing us to do these interviews. And I really hope you guys enjoy this episode. I am here with Amy and Katie outside of the Kodame event, outside the Midway, right? Um, and so I'm really excited to get to talk to you two. I thought that you're, so I watched the presentations yesterday, and uh, you guys are definitely doing something a little bit different than a lot of the other people here. So um, can you start just by giving our listeners a little bit of background on what it is you guys are doing and what the exhibit is and how you two have worked together? Yes. So I'm Amy Leviers. I'm a assistant professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I run the robotics, automation, and dance lab, the RAD lab. And so my background is in both dance and robotics, and my lab, the the tools that we use come from both of those domains and disciplines. Um, and I met Katie about a no, two years ago, a little over two years ago, at conference for research on choreographic interfaces at Brown University um, that's organized by Sydney Skybetter. So we met two years ago and had a brief encounter. I'm Katie Kwan, by the way. (laughs) We met two years ago and had a brief encounter. And then last year, we had a very lengthy conversation at a party after the conference. And I also come from a dance and choreography background, and I have an interest in any human-facing technology, which is all technology for the most part. And Amy and I had a long conversation, and I really expressed a lot of interest in her work and sort of vice versa, and she invited me to be the artist-in-residence at the Rad Lab. So we've been collaborating for a little over a calendar year at this point, and Our work has extended not only from an artistic and performance piece, but also into simultaneous research and now a new look at some type of commercialization based off of our research and performance um, creations. So it has turned into, we lovingly call our multimodal 5'9", 12-headed monster, and (laughs) The piece that we're presenting at Kodame is called Time to Compile, and we also spoke about our work yesterday. Awesome. So why, uh, my first question is just, how did it come to be that there's an artist in residence at a robotics lab? We need one. A need. Okay. A deep need for one. And I found an artist that would be a good fit, that was game, that was... um, pugnacious that was ready and I mean it was a blank slate we talked about this a little bit yesterday but it was 
what are you going to do? I don't know. Let's not even pretend we know what you're going to do. Come teach some classes. That's concrete. That will be good for my students. That will be good for you to be exposed to their backgrounds and their way of being. Um, And then you'll be in the lab and you'll see what it's like. And we'll go from there. So it was really a blank slate when we started this. And I think that was a good decision. Um, And probably why we still don't exactly know what it is. I mean, in a way, like in a way it evolves every time that we talk about it, research, write paper, perform, you know, have a group meeting, give a presentation, someone asks us a question, and then all of a sudden it's like, here's a new answer. You know, it's constant. And and I think that's kind of the right place for it to be. And I think maybe in the next, you know, it's, it's, it's spawned off a lot of different ideas. You see the performance tonight, you see the talk yesterday, but it's also grant proposals. It's also next research. It's also, so it's been a very creative sandbox. Um, yeah. So I'm curious though, like what for, um, so for you, Amy, what in your background as a roboticist, um, sort of motivated you to make sure that you're thinking empathically around that technology and then sort of conversely for you Katie what is it about your experience um, either as a dancer or not as a dancer that has you interested about how that sort of uh, kinetic understanding and you know the artistic part of dance can you know where can that cross over into the technology and why is it important Like, what is it in your mutual backgrounds that have led to that collaboration? Empathic is a word I'm going to steer us away from. Sure. Uh, It's not a word I apply to robots so often, or I do so with care and carefulness. And I did not bring her to be like an, what's the noun version? An empath? Is that a noun? (laughs) You know, that wasn't her job. The job was to come and teach techniques in choreography about arrangement of motion. Ah, how can you. you arrange a motion? How can you rearrange a motion? What are the way? And when you rearrange it, how does that change the way it sits inside of a context? And huh. how does like that's choreography? And that's a we call it. Sometimes we call it a technology. It's a skill. It's a domain of expertise that I believe mm. my students in the lab needed. And so that's my sh- initial answer to that. Okay. No, that's that's a great distinction. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying it's not. Uh, the the creative part was secondary. What you what you were curious about was dancers understand movement. Like who can understand movement better than a dancer who's been through that training? Is that right? Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> I'm. Yeah, I would based say on my impartial answer, not based on your impartial. <laughs> Fair enough. To a degree, and something Amy and I discuss frequently between each other and the folks in the Rad Lab is that there is an inherent choreography to everyday life. Mm. So, in the same, and then the context becomes doubly critical once you recognize what that choreography is. Yeah. So, for example, if I reach out and shake your hand, that's one method of choreography. If I reach out and shake your hand, and we're standing on a tightrope, and I'm trying to save you from falling into the deep crevice, that's an entirely different context where that choreography has a different meaning. Mm. And so even recognizing in the most, not necessarily simplistic, but in ways that can be agreed upon, foundational, foundational. agreed upon by a community of people who maybe have different trainings or at least taxonomies to talk about what it is that they do, Mm. was, I would say, an auxiliary benefit of being in the Rad Lab. And additionally something we discuss all the time is this notion that 
living in these silos is not only inaccurate, but it's damaging to the work that we do. So saying sure. that someone's an artist and saying that someone's a roboticist potentially doesn't benefit our process and also yeah. doesn't benefit the forwarding of the work that gets made, which is inherently multimodal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, and I mean, I apologize. I no, no. didn't mean to put anybody in a box. Um, but it, it, it's just a curious... <laughs> <laughs> we are actively well, gesturing out of the box. <laughs> <laughs> you are. But, it, but I mean, that is also sort of an important... It, it seems to me like that's also an important part of your work, right? I mean, you're, mm -hmm. the, the, this collaboration is a microcosm of that very notion that, um, you know, we are all multimodal, right? And so... Um, yes, and disciplines are important because they help you get deep expertise in one mm. little mole hole. Mm. But to just solve real problems, you need contributions from from multiple disciplines and i think that's growingly recognized just across you know the national science foundation talks about something called convergent research and that is the idea that there are these disciplines and we have to transition across these disciplines to get real or, or, or to solve certain large big picture problems and so yeah. i think you know an example of that in some of the work we've done in robotics in the lab is to think about you know, these contexts that Katie is talking about, you do it, you do a gesture, you walk. And are you walking on a, in a lab in an isolated, sterile, white vacuum in place? Or are you walking inside of a jungle or inside of a war zone or inside of a, and how, how all of those things affect the way human robot interaction is going to take place. And so that's just a true problem we have in robotics. We think we're bringing robots out into the world, into human-facing contexts, and all of a sudden, the context that these things exist in are just, instead of one factory where we control the humidity and we control the lighting and we control mm. who's allowed in what zone of the factory, in a human-facing context, <clears throat> the context is so myriad and variable. I mean, we move from shade to sun just to do this interview. Right. And I feel so much better, right? <laughs> like, but a robot would be freaking out. Like, because it's like all the lighting is different and all the, da -da -da, and the temperature is different. And da -da -da. So, and the squinting of the eyes. Remember we talked about the squinting of the right, eyes and right, how that right, was right, going right. to affect our interaction. I mean, yeah. all that's so natural to us and it's a natural to, you know, you choreographed the setting of this interview. We had to sit over here together and you sat over there. And like, you're a choreographer right. in that moment, right? I immediately feel more creative by you calling me <laughs> a choreographer in that moment. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. So, like, from your – in terms of where this is sort of motivated from, like, spiritually from you guys, in terms of, like, the spirit of the, the project, and is it – are you sort of examining, like, how we're going to be interacting with these things in the future? Is there, like – is there a part of this that's, like – hey, robots are like a pretty realistic thing that's going to happen. So let's start thinking about what everyday life looks like with them. Is it is this pure exploration for both of you? Um, it, it, what Can you kind of talk more about what the spiritual background of this is? So these mentions of societal relevance yeah. of at some point in the future, we may or may not be cared for by robots or they may or may not appear to collect our garbage and have these other roles in society. I, I think are inherent within the questions that we ask about, okay, well, how would this interaction be different if this robot was designed to do X or versus Y? Mm. But I love what you're asking about from a spiritual point of view, because I think there is something very internal self-examining about even my dad seeing our performance, who's 71 years old and an immigrant from another country, who said, why 
your piece made me wonder why do humans make robots that look like other humans? Mm -hmm. And there is something deep within us that has this desire. And Ken Goldberg spoke about this yesterday, has this desire to create an embodied human imitation. Why do we have that fascination? I think it's to some degree to validate our existence, validate who we are and that we belong here. And that if we can continue to proliferate in many different ways, it elevates humanity somehow. It takes us to a place that's different than the animals. You don't see chimpanzees designing tree sculptures out of to look like themselves, right? So there is something, and that also begs the larger question about what is the purpose of art? Um, and I think some of it at the end of the day is this idea of creation, leaving something behind, having relics. For me, I talk about working with robots as this mammoth exercise in imagination. They're so, where am I? What am I? Who am I? How do we create relationship? What's my relationship to Amy if she's moving with the robot and then I move with the robot? Does that robot have a relic of her movement and relationship to me? Mm. Do we become closer or farther apart because of that experience? So there are some central driving questions which seem uniform, regardless of whether it is a paper that we write or a performance that gets made. Some of these deeply internal examining things, which will be a lifetime. Mm. And I think for me, what you have to understand, and it's surprising, is that probably I like robots less than any person you've ever met. <laughs> and I'm borderline uninterested by them as an object. What drew me to the field and what makes me so passionate about the field is my interest in human movement and my interest in understanding. I mean, the, the, the thing that I was curious about initially is just how do bodies move through space and how do I determine one moving body or style of motion like Cunningham versus Graham versus Twilight's art versus these, these choreographers that I was studying in college. So to me, that deep interest in just understanding style of motion, choreographic choices, being able to supplement qualitative description of that phenomenon with quantitative description of that phenomenon makes me a roboticist just because of that interest, you know, because what are we doing in robotics? Well, we need to know how to quantify a, a way of being in the world in order to create a semi-autonomous or autonomous or completely teleoperated system that will translate our intent and, and interpret intent or, I mean, there's just any of those things, right? So I don't know that robots make me feel anything, but thinking about my own movement and having to become really precise about thinking about my own movement is what I find so interesting. And and you have to do that if there's a machine next to you. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting approach. Like, so almost roboticist by proxy. <laughs> yeah, by force. By unwilling, sort of dragging me, <laughs> kicking and screaming in. <laughs> so why? So I'm curious, though. Like, So I, I would understand the sentiment that I don't really care that much about robots. But like, I didn't say care. I said interest and like and love and that. I think I said interest. Interest. Okay, Some, sorry. Something about along yeah, yeah, those yeah. lines. I do care. But, it's, but it seems like you have like not a neutral reaction, but an mm -hmm. inverse reaction. Mm -hmm. So where does so that come from? So we struggle with that in the collaboration even because I'll be like, this isn't interesting. And everyone's like, Amy, you don't think it, it's interesting, it, it, you know, ever. And actually, it's things like Katie walking up to the robot and putting her cheek next to it and me being like, well, that is kind of interesting. Like. That's our litmus test. Like, if Amy thinks it's kind of interesting, we've probably <laughs> crossed some threshold because she is automatically kind of nonplussed. <laughs> is that fair? Yeah. De default nonplussed. I like that. It's a, it's a good way to live if you're going to be curious about everything around you, I guess. And the other beautiful thing that we can do, right, is heighten people's 
excitement about their own movement and their own bodies through these more simplistic machines that we're working with. So that's super exciting and that's super important too. And that's part of the themes we're exploring. So one of the things I'm curious about, and this is a little tangential, but um, like totally kind of piqued my interest watching you two yesterday. Um, And not, not to put people in boxes again, but when you say you're like teaching classes about, uh, about, human movement and um you pan to like a slide of a room full of a little video i think of a room full of engineers and roboticists who are like rolling around on the ground and stuff like that have you found um have you found it difficult or surprising or interesting to work with people who uh who who might not have that same level of comfort or experience in sort of just using their body to figure out problems Every human being uses a body to fill out, figure out problems. Yeah. For sure. Whether yeah. it's getting into a car and knowing the angle at which you need to tilt your head before you can feasibly fit underneath, or whether it's holding a bottle to make sure that the top is facing up so you can drink out of it, which is what we are doing right now. <laughs> um, every human, there there are some cultural norms that are different based on your movement practice, right? Like the idea that I could walk up and carry someone at some sort of dance improvisation open space and put my hands around their waist and lift them into the air is sort of considered non-sexual or there's like a safety there that's inherent. And all we had to do was create that same degree of safety, familiarity and goal or rule setting within the Rad Lab. And we immediately had a space where people felt like they were allowed to experiment and engage. And in the same way that I I want to say that everyone in the Rad Lab came with their own degree of movement experience and familiarity, and they were willing to listen to me, which was an incredibly lucky, appreciative sentiment to come into a room and feel people be open to you, um, regardless of what your background comes from, I think was hugely beneficial. And I have to say, choreography, composition, thinking about using your body in different ways, it's something that I hope everyone recognizes, and Amy and I discussed this a lot, everyone recognizes as a true form of knowledge, right? So that like you have sense memories based off of whatever tactile experiences you've had before. If I burned my stove, my hand on a stove 20 times, I'm going to have very different sentiments about putting my hands on foreign surfaces, right? Like, because that's a movement and a sense memory that functions irrespective of anything else. Didn't very well answer your question pertaining. I think what you want me to say is that it was surprising, strange, unusual, but it just was. Yeah. And we created a safe, a space that made sense for everyone to function within. Yeah. And, and I have to say, you know, that space existed before, before Katie. Yeah. For the first, the first level of filtering is the students that join my lab are forward thinking, innovative bold, brave individuals. They're not your normal, I mean, they're not even your normal people, yeah. much less. And so it's self-selecting, right? And by naming the lab that, I make it self-selecting. Um, so we all, I agree with everything. And I'd also just give a ton of kudos to the people that work with us because they're, they're game. Yeah. yeah. I'll say one more addition that I really loved. One of the things that we did was test some of these movement classes between each other. So establishing, you know, where's the beginning, the middle, the end? How are we starting? How are we introducing some of this material such that it all makes sense? Because really you can push something so intensely and so far that you never 
benefit from the baseline place where you could have started. So for example, if I had said, all right, everybody, now we're all going to make an opera from top to bottom and everyone needs to learn how to read this music today and we're all going to create our own rendition of Menon. It's like the, mm. finding a common language, we sort of call this meeting people where they are, like creating something that gives everyone a place to learn about this topic was something we worked fairly hard on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, and, there, and we have other collaborators in the lab who do that too. So Kat McGuire is a CMA who we've worked with for five or so years in the lab. Um, Riley Watts is a collaborator that came in and taught very movemently adventurous forward, you know, classes that uh, he facilitated very well. And so, and I'm sure I'm forgetting other people that have come into the lab and created, you know, helped create this soup. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I guess sort of where I was coming from with that question and, you know, I, uh, I see how, how that probably felt like a staged question with like <laughs> nerds rolling no, around no, no. on the floor, but, but because where it came from was, is I, um, so, so I have this thing, I, I'm, I, I love the blues, right. And I love, um, I, I love music that is traditionally black music. Right. And one of the things that, I always feel whenever I'm at a concert is like right or wrong. You can always feel not always, but there's oftentimes you can feel this like racial divide between um, people who culturally understand and enjoy dancing and like just getting down and having fun with music, which is what I think it should be versus like the super uptight whiteness that I've been raised with. And like, frankly am, like, I don't, you know, it's difficult for me to just, like, go and dance around and have fun because I look silly, but because I believe I look silly, right? And so... Um, well, that belief is something you could... You could... Do something about, right? No, observe, yeah. But yeah. but that's... I, I guess that's kind of the place that I'm coming from is because it is something, like, it is something that we all do every day and something that we do without thinking about. But when we do think about it, it can become this very polarizing... Uh, like uncomfortable thing, and you guys have to deal with that all the time. So, I, just curious if that yeah, came up. Totally, no, certainly does. It's something to be aware of as a person who's trying to hold a space that feels safe and feels not only physically safe but emotionally safe, yeah. and taking into account the relevance of people's cultural and psychological backgrounds for sure, and. I think any embodied practice, I mean, as Americans, and I'm going to make a lot of <laughs> probably broad reaching statements here, but I think we sort of have this like prevailing Puritan layover sentiment of feeling a little disembodied. And sometimes technology does that, right? Like if I, I'm willing to be a troll on the internet and type something I might not say to someone's face because I at that point, wouldn't have to gauge their emotional reaction, right? Like, there's something very unhuman about that. Um, and these things that make us disembodied are challenging to confront when you're then forcing everyone to be very embodied, right? Like, mm. put your cell phone down, stand, look at me, breathe, be in the room, hold my hand when I tell you to hold my hand, like, which can feel your point is well taken about coming from these different types of relevant backgrounds. But I think as Amy mentioned, having this continuous space over time of creating conversation and articulation and saying, if you feel uncomfortable, you don't need to be a part of this. 
Um, and then also assuming that people are going to be adventurous and game and try something they haven't tried before. I mean, I've never taken judo. I'm very scared of someone <laughs> trying to knock me over, but I would be very open to some sort of judo. I've just never had one before. Yeah. Which I think could be said for many people who have never, oh, I've always wanted to play. I've just never done it before. You know, and then saying, well, now you can do it for the first time and there are no barriers to entry and you can be here in this safe space and try composing a dance of kitchen equipment, which we did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so creating the allowance for that mm. is important. Awesome. Um, what... If there's one thing, actually, I'm going to ask that last. But before I do, I am curious if you can speak at all about the commercialization aspect of what you're doing. Either what it is or that's we probably We have no unlikely. idea even what it is. <laughs> that's where we'll start. But we're doing okay. the National Science Foundation uh, Innovation Core this summer. So t check back with us in the fall. So what is that? We're walking into it with an open mind. It's a customer discovery workshop. And you go out into the world. Cool. You get out of the lab. You talk to real people. You see what their real problems are. Yeah. And you have this sort of buffet of technology back in the lab is yeah. the idea. It's yeah. like we're going to figure out the problem before we even yeah, yeah. Get, fill our plates from the buffet. Does that Very make sense? Very cool. <laughs> um, so what is, you know, if there's one thing that you would want our listeners or your audience, you know, at, at these presentations to take away, what is it that you want people to take away from your work? One thing? Uh, well, multiple <laughs> things. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't limit it. Empowerment. Hmm. The sentence that came to mind was, robots aren't scary and humans are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> which, which I am then tempering with the fact that I had coffee with my friend this morning who saw the show last night and said, I'm still scared of robots. How do I not be scared? Yeah. But it was the second part of that query that gave me hope was how do I not be scared? Mm. And that there's a how there and not a I will remain scared forever. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. Um, how can people find the work? We're both on Twitter. I'm A. Laviers, A-L-A-V-I-E-R-S. And I'm just my first and last name, Katie Kwan, nine letters. Kwan, Kwan, like, is pronounced like Michelle Kwan, the figure skater. Right. But it's spelled C-U-A-N. She's which, also figure skating in space right now, kind of, with her arms. You were. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think i talk about Michelle Kwan without doing that thing. Yeah. yeah, she, that arabesque, you know the one that she always does? She does that big arabesque with her head craned up. God, yeah. And every time standing ovation do you remember that that was like yeah. a deep part of my 90s child oh yeah that's definitely 90s good stuff there uh, and katie with a c and katie with an yeah, I. Yeah, yeah. right and then you can google rad lab uiuc you'll find all sorts of stuff about the research and the and the work and you can also check out time to .com, which is where our artistic it's an informational page about where we're performing and where this is coming next and why we're doing it and who's involved and that kind of thing yeah well this has been uh Super a pleasure to get to talk to you guys a little bit. Uh, I, you know, again, I got to see you talk yesterday and I was super interested. I frankly feel like I wish I had more time to understand, uh, dig in a little bit more on what you guys were doing before I had the chance to talk to you. Because I feel like there's so much that you guys are are uh, are working on. And, you know, there's it, it's just 
I feel like the energy of what you guys are doing and it's so fascinating. Um, feel the energy and let the energy go with you. Don't even try <laughs> to like dissect it. Yeah. You know, like a frog Maybe that's on the a problem table. I'm like, having. Yeah. Let, let whatever resonates with you just, just, just let carry. It be. There's nothing to understand. There's no <laughs> test. There's nothing that you have to get. You just, yeah. if it's just the energy of our conversation, go with it. Yeah, we have, Amy and I say our process is continuous yeah. and unbounded. <laughs> So if you have questions that are continuous and unbounded, they likely are because our process is continuous and unbounded. And (laughs) I would say every time we turn over a leaf page, robot arm, there are 5 million bajillion more questions than we could have even started with at the beginning. And that's where it kind of feels like we are on an adventure we want to be on. Yeah. And it means that there's lots of space for people to do like stuff that we're not doing, stuff that's like what we're doing, stuff that's totally. so get I think there's so many opportunities totally. in this space to work, to branch, to deepen, to f- figure out what we forgot and didn't and, and overlooked. And so I think it's about growing this this way of working for us. And so yeah. always can reach out and ask questions. We don't know the answers, but we'll yeah. listen. It seems like you guys are real good at real serious play. Like there's a very playful element about what you guys are doing, but it's very, very real work, too. It's because so. we sat in the sun. If you had interviewed <laughs> us over there in the right, shade, it would have been completely different. This would have been. <laughs> I love that a whole serious vibe. play. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to write a notebook and underline profusely. Well, whatever you guys commercialize, I expect royalties from that. <laughs> awesome. We're trademarking it. <laughs> well, thanks so much for the conversation. And uh, if anybody's in San Francisco, check out The Thing tonight. Cool. Thank Thanks. you so much. Cheers. Cheers. Our last but certainly not least interview here at Artobots is with Laura Seidel. Laura Seidel is the digital culture correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered, Morning Edition, Weekend Edition, and NPR.org. So frankly, talking to her was punching above my weight class. So uh, you're going to hear her much more eloquent than I am on this podcast interview. Uh, But she was very gracious and frankly, someone very interesting to talk to. Um, At Artobot, she was giving a talk on uh, what criminals and artists have in common and specifically around how they tend to break the rules to be to find the best solutions to problems. but Laura's far too interesting to stop there. Our conversation meanders, and uh, I think you'll find her as interesting as I did. So please listen along to Laura Seidel. And by the way, please follow her on NPR because she is a great journalist. Yeah, I'm sitting with Laura Seidel outside of uh, the Midway uh, at the Kodame Festival here. Um, and the talk that you just gave was on uh, artists and criminals. So I'm curious... Give the little snapshot. Why? Why would you even put those two together in the first place? Well, um, it it wasn't me who did it. It was William Gibson, the science fiction author, who mm. made this incredible statement. Which, uh, when I went to see him speak, which is, you know, when he's thinking about where a technology, looking at an emergent technology, something relatively new, he does not read papers by technologists or go to talks by them. He said, "But give me a room full of." artists Mm. and criminals trying to figure out what they can do with an emergent technology. And then I'm good. I've made my lunch. And, you know, he feels that they are often much more prescient about the direction that it's going. And I, I mean, Gibson himself is an artist, 
you know, not a visual artist. He's yeah, but he's a a, a creative. And the he was asked the question in the context of a guy who wrote a book in 1984 about an internet that was basically dominated by large multinational corporations fighting off hackers. And the main character, uh, one of the main characters is an ex-military guy who was involved in cyber espionage between the U.S. and Russia. And he wrote that in 1984 <laughs> when Vince Cerf was still dreaming up the internet. And he, it <laughs> right. was so early. And so um, I was interested, like, where did he get his ideas from? And, and that was a very important source for him yeah. of, of how he thinks about where he's going to get his idea for, you know, thinking to the future in science fiction. Yeah. So what are the types of criminals that you're talking to? Like, are we talking about like, <laughs> are we talking petty theft? Are we talking murderers? Like what's, well, you who can talk, you, you talk, talk to? I, 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 I would say probably, you know, one of the people who was particularly interesting to think about was anonymous. Hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that sort of now in looking back, you know, on the days of when anonymous was more in the news, you know, I, they're still around, but they've kind of, you know, they're not as, much of a potent force is how much their tactics resemble what the Russians in WikiLeaks did. Mm. You know, yeah. I mean, they really, you know, they hacked. So they hacked these big corporations, and then you know, um, Barrett Brown, who was the center of my profile, who wasn't actually a hacker, he was sort of a spokesperson for them, and then he would sift through these documents and look for you know juicy newsy things to bring down big corporations. Yeah. And so, you know, in a way that was that they were quite prescient. And yeah. um, I strangely, I did this, you know, I was having fun with this series. I, I also know that Mr. Robot, have you ever watched Mr. Mm -hmm. Robot? Yeah, yeah. sure. Uh, so I interviewed Sam Esmail, who created it, and he was inspired by Anonymous. Huh. I did not know that. Yes. That's and, interesting. And he had friends who were very involved in that growing up. Um, and... Um, I said to him, I said, do you think, you know, this future, you know, that you imagine where, you know, uh, a group of hackers brings down, like, turns the world into chaos because they get into the servers of the largest corporation in the world? I mean, is that realistic that that could happen? And he's like, yeah, I think that could happen. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, so did Barrett Brown yeah. from Anonymous. So uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a kind of intriguing criminal. I mean, he spent yeah. four years in jail, Barrett Brown. I don't really think necessarily so justly for what he did yeah. um, per se. You know, mm. he was he was actually initially caught up because he had uh, taken one of the stolen files and downloaded it to a group so they could look through it and it had stolen credit card numbers in it. Yeah. And so they kind of got him on that when he was saying, well, I was just trying to be a journalist. But he's a very flawed, complicated, interesting character, Bear <laughs> Brown. Yeah. Um, and uh, so there, that was someplace I looked. I then looked at some the, the guy who, um, who as a kid, brought down MySpace. And now he's become sort of a... Ah, yes. Uh, the Sammy Worm. Yeah. 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 The uh, Sammy Worm. Yeah. I, I actually uh, met him at a conference a couple right, years ago. Yeah. yeah. So now he's like a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, he, he's, he's kept up at night about the internet of things, Yeah. Mm. uh, which, you know, uh, as a former criminal, he can see the, you know, he, he worries that like some kid just like him, who's 19 years old is going to be having some fun. And here we have all these devices, including, or cars and all kinds of things <clears throat> connected to the internet and they're going to wreak havoc. He only did it to MySpace, but you yeah. know, so 
do you think that there has it's to be... It's already happening, by the way. I mean, there actually oh, yeah. already has been a case. These Ruck, former Rutgers student, you know, at a botnet that they were running off of, like they were running like an illegal operation off of distributed computers, like off huh. of people's like, you know, washers and dryers and using that. And so... Yeah, yeah I mean, well, and that's uh, the the North Korean, the silo hack, right? Um that, that was, I mean, it was the government that did it, but same, same concept. That's cool. Um, what is it about? So I think it's interesting. I mean, what is it about the criminal mindset that makes this more interesting or makes them better problem solvers? Like why, why not look at white hat hackers instead of anonymous, which is kind because of the, I don't think, I think the motivation for a criminal is much more desperate, you know? People who are, you know, they, like in the sense, like, you want to make money. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they're doing, I mean, you know, if you look at uh, William Gibson was talking about sort of, you know, the way like uh, the way criminals uh, immediately adapted, you know, uh, buzzers, you know, the personal beepers when they yeah. first came out and yeah. they were out on the street, you know, you, prostitutes were using them, drug dealers were using them, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's like a, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a necessity there, uh, a sort of like, huh, how can this help me do my evil deed? Yeah. How can it help me make more money? <laughs> so then on the other side of the coin, do you think artists are like as as dramatically motivated or is it just their exploratory nature? They're just exploratory. Yeah. I think they're just exploring and they just are thinking about things. Why am I blanking on her name? But there's an artist in New York who um, has done like work with DNA testing and she's like done things like um made like her art is this is sort of funny like a spray that will immediately erase your dna hmm. spots yeah <laughs> uh because you know we're she sees this world we're moving towards where they're collecting more and more dna and um and they're also she actually did this with chelsea manning hmm. um where uh chelsea manning wasn't allowed to show her face while she was in prison to the world. And so uh, Chelsea snuck out a bit of DNA and, um, uh, and we didn't know what Chelsea looked like as a woman. So, so this artist took the DNA and um, created Chelsea's face as a woman using her DNA. Uh, And then she also noted that this same technology is being used to find criminals you take a piece of their DNA and you draw a sketch of what you think they look like based on their DNA, hmm. which is frankly really scary. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I remember watching a Ted talk not long ago um, with a guy who was a future crimes expert. And he, he mentioned that he's like, you know, crime hasn't really changed much. People's like the, the basic crimes keep getting committed over and over again. People's basic motivations tend to be the same. Everybody wants money. And uh, it's like, but what has changed is that technology has changed the scale at which the crime can be committed. So, you know, that the example true. being that like back in the day, the most money you could steal was whatever was in someone's little leather coin purse. And then once banks came around, you could knock off a bank. And once trains came around, you could knock off a whole train. And now with the internet, you can steal money from hundreds of millions of people. So do you see that at all? Like in when, as you're talking to uh, criminals and thinking about like how they're using emerging technology, does the scale of that ever just like Absolutely. terrify you? But that's the thing. That's the thing about the world we're living in right now about everything, right? It's just like computers. It's not that we're doing anything different. This is what than we've ever done. Yeah. It's the, it's that the scale has changed. Yeah. So yeah. fake news isn't new. 
Yeah. The ability to reach so many people so quickly with it is what's new. Mm. Yeah. Right? Interesting. I mean, you know, gossip is as old as humanity. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, people make stuff up for the, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. I, and I guess I think it's just with artists that they're just, they are just exploring and they're willing to try things. And they, mm. and it, it depends on the artist. Some are making, are engaged with social commentary. Um, you know, I think, um, some less so. Some are just trying to make something beautiful out of it. But even in that. Yeah. Even in that. <laughs> you know, there's another artist who I um, have in the series, Lori Frick, who's a data artist. And she got these huge dumps of data from OkCupid. They were anonymized, but they were answers to survey questions about personalities. <laughs> ones that OkCupid doesn't actually really use. Right. And, you know, she began making these, like, data profiles of people. And the questions were things like, they were to measure certain characteristics. So a question would be like... Um, if you were involved with somebody and they told you their deepest, darkest secret and you broke up with them, would you, A, tell other people, B, keep their secret? And it was meant to measure loyalty, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so she came up with these sort of beautiful portraits. They're like color patterned, different colors, meaning different aspects of personality. And she imagines though that all of this will get to a point where if we're able to collect data on our physiological being in real time and also mix it with our social graph that eventually will make it easier to avoid toxic people because you'll see really quickly who's bad for you and who's good for you. Mm. And so, um, you know, so this is not a negative thing. And, right. and in fact, I think she's onto something. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird like Skynet vision of the future though, right? <laughs> but if, I guess if it's helpful, it's helpful, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a little, it's, a, it's, a, it's one, it's a, like her vision, like she thinks it's a great idea. I'm a little mixed. I'm like, <laughs> right, do I right. really want to know if that friend is bad for me? Yeah. I know. I get drunk every time I see them, but I have such a good time. Yeah. Well, that's like yeah. the, like, you know, do you, if you could know the exact time and date that you're going to die, would you want to know, right? right. Like that's, that's always <laughs> But, but uh, you know, she's doing this in fun and for exploration, yeah. and um, it isn't necessarily negative. It's just yeah. showing a possibility. Yeah. And we all have a desire. Like, don't you kind of, I actually do want to kind of avoid those bad relationships if I <laughs> right. can. Right, right. So, um, and the internet could make it possible. Yeah. Have you seen any any pattern emerge in terms of, uh, you know, the, the path that a technology will take from sort of... Uh, the technology emerges and then, you know, criminals pick it up and, and artists kind of sniff out what, what criminals are doing with it before it ever finds its way into the mainstream. Is there any, has there been any rhyme or reason to that? Or is it pretty random how oh, the I think it happens technology well, I travels? Mean, I mean, I think it's, well, I mean, I think there's just a million examples of, of when we look back at what artists were doing with technology that they pushed the edges. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and I'm trying to think of a good one right now, you know, other than, you know, the neuromancer, which is kind of a, you know, and, and science fiction. But um, but there are others um, that may be prescient. I mean, Trevor Paglin is doing some work now. The artist Trevor Paglin is doing some work on surveillance. And I saw its talk of his recently that, you know, where he really showed how granularly he can you know, figure out who's in a room and things like that, you know, mm. and how, and how advertisers are working on that. And it, you know, it was very powerful stuff. I'm not doing him justice. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm really not doing him justice <laughs> because he's an incredibly smart 
artist, but you know, yeah. he's already, you know, it's already happening. He's just showing you yeah. what it does. And like, yeah, sort of like Alexander Rebin, it's already happening, right? This is this roboticist who yeah. I was talking about. Um, you know, we're already getting robots in our lives that we're interacting with. And his work is all about uh, showing us how we respond to these things before they're in our lives. So maybe yeah. we can think about it a little. Right? Yeah. Can you explain a little bit the, the pizza box robot? Oh, the pizza box. <laughs> that's <laughs> what I call it. I don't know if that's really what it's called. Uh, so he created this robot called Blabdroid, and it's actually a really simple robot. And it, its skin is made of cardboard. It has two eyes and a little smile carved in it. Uh, it rolls around on little tractor wheels. And maybe it's, I don't know, it's, it's even a foot. It's about a foot high. Yeah. And um, it, it talks in an eight-year-old boy's voice <laughs> and asks really personal questions. Tell me something you've never told a stranger before. Who do you love more than anyone in the world? I mean, I'm not doing a great imitation of an eight-year-old boy's voice. but You're nailing it. Uh, but, um, you know, the idea was to see if people would really open up. And there's a recorder inside and it, they're making a movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, based on people's responses. Um, and it is amazing how open people will be. And as it turns out, um, uh, it, it's proof that when it comes to opening up, we are really cheap dates. <laughs> we, we, you know, it does not take much. Right. Just a cute little robot comes along and the next thing you know, you are open your heart <laughs> to this cute little robot. <laughs> and and I, I think that it's giving us the experience of something that's coming. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and what I like about his work is that it's actually very experiential. Yeah, you you can come to your own conclusions. He's not telling you where to go. Yeah, <laughs> I do have to say though. Uh, hopefully, our listeners will look him up. But they are irrationally cute. Oh, for being oh for being a cardboard box, two tracks, and like a button with a smiley face. They're adorable. <laughs> well, that is that's the story of of really good design, right? Right, right. Really right. good design. Uh, you know, the artistry of making this little box thing yeah <laughs> adorable and you yeah. know and they spent a lot of time it was actually he and another uh, filmmaker they worked together on it brent huff mm. um helped create this um and and you know then they decided to try and see if they could make a film yeah based on people's very open answers to these probing questions it's, you know? it's really interesting there was a talk yesterday about um are you familiar with the concept of the uncanny valley? Of course. Yeah. So there was there was a guy yesterday talking about that, and he mentioned that um, that roboticists right now have to intentionally make their creations less human. That's correct. Because people are so terrified of the things that are borderline human but aren't quite there yet. That is, yeah. There's this weird thing. I actually did a story about this ages ago, um, as it pertained to. In, in this case, to the film Benjamin Button with Brad Pitt. <laughs> okay. And that's, that film is actually an incredibly, technologically speaking, a very important film because they managed to get on the other side of the Uncanny Valley. They made a fake Brad Pitt who looked real. Yeah. And, and it was actually hard at the time to get people to come on and work on the movie because everybody was afraid they were going to make something uh, that was made Brad Pitt look creepy. And, you know, he's a hottie. You don't want to make Brad Pitt look creepy but the basis of the film is that he's aging backwards so you know he's he's born looking like an old man and he gets younger and younger and younger and so there there had to be a point in the film where it wasn't really brad pitt you were looking at yeah right <laughs> um and and they had to make it convincing and so in they managed you know 
in terms of special effects, that was the first time they ever crossed to the other side of the Uncanny Valley. Yeah. So um, brilliant. Yeah, but they have not yet done that. I mean, it's true. Like so, even um, with things like artificial limbs. Mm, yeah. You'll notice, like, if they try to make them look human, they always look weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another example that um, that the presenter used yesterday was in animation. Um, you know, it's everybody knows that like the huge eyes are cute, but another reason that uh, Pixar uses the giant eyeballs is because if the eyes get too close to real, even if the, the rest of the face is not, if the eyes get too close to real, people just won't watch the movie. Yeah. They don't, it creeps them out too much. It, exactly. Super Exa- interesting. It, it, is, it is. It's just like one of those uh, interesting, but I, I lose track of my thoughts. I just had to tell you that because that whole, <laughs> that whole concept is, is so interesting and, and actually ties into his work because he's not trying. You don't need, I mean, I get a little noise back here. Yeah. You don't need to make them look human. In fact, you're better off not. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. How can people find you? Oh, how can they find me? Well, you can find me online, of course, um, Laura Seidel. Um, and um, I guess if you ever want to write to me at NPR, you can just, my first initial is L uh, and my last name, Seidel, S like Sam, Y, D as in David, E-L-L at NPR.org. As always, thank you so much, dear listener, for listening to this episode of The State of the Art. Really hope you found it as interesting as we did to interview outside of the Artobots Festival. And so many thanks to Kodame and Vanessa and everybody there for letting us do this. It was such a good time. If you want to find out a little bit more about our guests, uh, Amy and Katie are on the internet, of course, because everybody is. I would recommend checking out their website at Radlab. Dot mexi.illinois.edu. That's Radlab, R A D L A B, dot mexi, M E C H S E, dot Illinois.edu. And to find Laura, I would recommend checking out her Twitter account at Sidel. That's S Y D E L L. She's awesome. She has plenty to say, and you will find lots of good information there. Thanks for listening to the State of the Art. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. It really helps us out. Leaving a review is super easy and helps other listeners just like you discover our podcast. Look, we want to bring you the coolest conversations from art and technology, but we don't know everything. If you guys have any questions, thoughts, or suggestions, please hit us up on Twitter or Instagram under the handle State of the Art. There's some other awesome exclusive content there, too. Until the next episode, this is your host, Andrew Herman, signing off from State of the Art.